Good morning. It's a joy to be here. And I want to thank Molly and Jane and Dennis and others that are a part of this process as you all honor and commemorate Earth Day and commit yourselves to the, the goals of Earth justice. I also am very grateful that you arranged such lovely weather yesterday for my visit here. So keep up the good work on that. The second scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 4, the first 12 verses. This is found in the Pew Bibles on page 3. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a child with the help of the Lord. And next she bore his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought an offering of the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering God had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I've been told this is a streamlined service, so I'll do my best to honor that. You need to imagine a press conference on the topic of climate change and global ecological crisis. So picture a cluster of microphones all jostling for position at the center of the podium. Picture a group of experts on this topic entering the stage from behind a curtain to address uh, an anxious gaggle of media reporters. Now, when you pictured all that, did you include a clergy person in that group of experts? Probably not. Maybe the Dalai Lama, maybe a Buddhist monk, but certainly not a Presbyterian. And so the question is why? Why is it that someone carrying a Bible would not be included in that group? Now, there's a range of answers to that question. I'll give at least three. First, the whole topic of earth justice has become politicized. And so pastors in most congregations have a tendency, like Mark Twain said, to be as nervous as long-tailed cats in rooms full of rocking chairs when the subject moves towards politics, which is an odd dynamic given that so much of what Jesus said had obvious and direct political implications. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Render to God that which is God's. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The meek, not the military, not the powerful, shall inherit the earth. 
The church has too often recused itself from conversations around science ever since Darwin's origin of the species set forth holy howls that span from the Scopes Monkey Trial to the Creation Museum in Kentucky today. And the other detail is that we tend to think that the language of the Bible doesn't fit with the language of science, that the poetry and the prose composed over two millennia ago simply has nothing to say or add to a scientific discourse, which is quite a shame. Science and science talk has never been limited simply to theories and data. The foundational principles of science are as old as the founding principles of civilization itself. And what to do with science and those principles is shaped by a morality that's as old as the oldest piece of scriptural parchment. So no one in a white lab coat should ever presume to silence someone wearing a clerical collar. So the question is, how do we as people of faith re-engage on the topic of science in this current environment? Well, to begin with, you have to look for your opening and you have to be willing to speak up. It's estimated that 77% of the American population believes that aliens visited this planet, while only 44% seem to believe that climate change is tied to human activity. So obviously there's a lot of room for improvement and important faith conversations on this topic. And even if some news media talking heads have convinced people that erratic weather patterns have nothing to do with human behavior, it still remains undeniable that the sheer number of people on Earth today, now over 7 billion, are going to be affected by bad weather patterns, drought, polar vortex, tsunamis, in a way that has a more drastic and damaging effect than was the case 50 or 100 years ago. And so people of faith need to find their voice. Second, to talk as a person of faith about God the Creator doesn't mean you have to derail every conversation about Garden of Eden versus Big Bang Theory. But it should affirm that God as a Creator fundamentally points us in the direction of stewardship and nurture and not one of destructive consumption. Genesis 1.28, the famous verse that talks about human beings shall have dominion over all life on earth, should never be read as a synonym for domination. Dominion means to exercise care, to show nurture, to be a good steward of creation. And that's why the Genesis story is usually linked with the Psalms and the images from the New Testament of God and Christ as a good shepherd, caring for the flock, leading them to water, making sure that they're safe and protected from harm. And in the same way, we are called to be shepherds whose dominion is attending stewardship, care for earth. Wasteful, exploitative use of the earth's resources has no place in a faith-based, justice-guided theology. But let's move this to the passages we heard read from Tom and myself. There is vocabulary within Scripture that can improve and strengthen the current conversations around ecology and earth justice. 
And one place to start is Psalm 104. Now, this psalm is a hymn of praise to God the Creator, but it likely hasn't anything in it that on the surface would tweak a scientist's interest. But if you look carefully at verse 6, there's a marvelous image of how the earth is covered with deep waters as with a garment. Now, what is a garment? In Hebrew, lebush. The garment could be, in the old times, a shawl, a robe, a tunic. In modern times, it would be a shirt, a dress, a light spring jacket. But that metaphor from the Psalms moves quickly beyond poetry to then cause us to think more about the garments of earth. Garments, by definition, are light and comfortable. They're not heavy armor. They're loose fabric. They require care. They require patching. And sometimes that image of the garment will guide us into some of the deeper truths that Jane mentioned to the children. The three thin garments that sustain all life on earth. The garments of water, soil, and air. Let me explain. Three-fourths of the earth's surface is covered by water, but most of that volume is deep and dark and cold. Only a thin layer of water on the surface is warm enough to actively support the fish and the microorganisms that are crucial for our life. Think of it this way. Every second breath you take came from the phytoplankton in that thin garments floating on the surface of the deeps. Now, move up to the soil. Yes, rocks and minerals extend down to the earth's core, but only a thin layer of topsoil, roughly two to eight inches in depth, sustains the bulk of microorganism and plant life that guides and nourishes all human life. And then lastly, over the earth exists this layer of ozone, the garment that shields us from the harmful ultraviolet radiation from outer space. Now, the ozone layer, some estimate to be as wide as 30 miles, but that's only because the air pressure at that height is so diminished. If you move down the ozone layer to sea level pressure, the entire ozone would only be about three inches thick, a very thin garment indeed. So these garments of water, soil, and ozone are critical for life on earth to exist, and they require both care and maintenance, especially to repair any damage we might have done to them. Now, let's take this one step further, and this relates to the second scripture passage. What happens when these garments actually testify against us? The story of Cain and Abel from Genesis is well known, but it's actually not preached on very much because it's been left out of the three-year lectionary cycle in the church. But in that story, one verse is all it takes to name the murder of Abel. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. But three verses are necessary to name how the death affected the soil and laid a curse upon Cain. The Lord said, Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. It's opened its mouth to receive his blood from your hand, and now the soil 
will no longer yield to you its strength, and you will be a fugitive and a wanderer. The earth's thin garment of soil was stained with blood shed violently, turning Cain into a wanderer over a harsh land. The stained garment of earth's soil still cries out today from modern bloodshed, warfare, militarism. The stained garment of soil cries out from chemical spills, fracking pollution, from industrial waste, poisonous landfills. And the garment of soil is not alone in making its testimony back to us stewards of the earth, us children of Cain. The thin garment of water is stained by ocean dumping, acid runoff, overfishing. The thin garment of the ozone is stained by carbon monoxide and engine exhaust and treating that layer like an open sewer to which 90 million tons of gaseous waste are dumped every day. These three earth garments are currently stained and damaged by us. And so with Cain of old, they can no longer yield to us their full strength, making us, in effect, strangers and risking becoming fugitives on the very earth we were called to protect and exercise care over. So maybe that's the real reason why no one wearing clerical garb is invited to the press conference to speak on Earth Days. Because if we were true to our scriptural roots, and if we were passionate about shaping our life priorities according to them, then they might not want to hear that message. But we still have to find a way to get to the stage. We need to find a way to speak into those microphones, because without the full vocabulary of our faith, words like Creator God, garments, mercy, we will have very little to believe in and even less to hope for in the future. Now, thankfully, we are an Easter people. In the coming weeks, both Molly and Jane will be talking about resurrections, both the grand one of Christ and the little grace-filled resurrections that mark so much of daily life. But still know this. Wherever God has placed you, there is something you can do to insert the language and the priorities of faith into the larger scientific discussion about earth justice. Now, maybe that comes through advocacy, pushing for policy changes and laws that protect the life-sustaining garments of soil and water and air. Maybe it comes through environmental practices, planting native trees and bushes, using rainwater wisely, riding bicycles instead of driving exhaust-spewing vehicles. The stains in Earth's garment need not be permanent. We have to simply remember our calling. We are seamstresses called by God to patch and to heal and repair the damage. We are tailors and fabric artists called to alter our priorities to protect the beauty of creation. We are Easter gardeners, planting seeds of hope, knowing that they will not even bloom or grow during our lifetime. And we are psalm singers, praising the God of water, soil, and air. So this day, I encourage you to remember your calling as people of God. Amen.